0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hmm. Y'all going to make me be that pastor, huh? Y'all going to make me be that guy every week. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. There we go. If you've been with us, you know that we've been uh, now for, gosh, three weeks. We've been locked into this series called Bloodline. Church, say Bloodline bloodline right It's a series that we first introduced back in the spring of 2017 when we wanted to get to uh, we wanted to walk through the lineage of Jesus. We wanted to walk through the family tree of Jesus and when we originally began this in 2017, we wanted to walk through it through the idea um, that I think I think many of us had that Jesus's family tree was so royal and so perfect and filled with so much greatness that there wasn't possibly, Any scandal or crazy, wild, radical redemption that had to take place in order to make Jesus's birth possible. And what we found in that series is that flat out, that's just not true. Right. Right. Part of the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus's family tree and the situations he came from are riddled with scandal. And so we wanted to bring that back around as we lead into Advent, and we wanted to go through the family tree once more, but this time through a different lens, specifically through the lens of the stories of the women that stand out in the lineage of Jesus. We wanted to tell the stories of some of the women in an effort to testify to God's faithfulness and God's power, even in the midst of a patriarchal society. Now, I know that I'm not alone this morning when I say that some of the most powerful influences in my life have been women. I'm by myself? No, sir. Okay. And so to me, it seems to be a shame that we wouldn't highlight them in the biblical narrative the same way they have been highlighted in our lives. See, for me, when I think of the impact that a few women specifically have had on my life on my life I, sorry, I'm from the South for on my life, I go back to high school. I think specifically of sophomore year. The reason I think of sophomore year is because sophomore year, uh, for two reasons. Number one, it was the year that I gave up. It was the year that I gave up on school, it was the year that I gave up on, on, on sports, it was the year that I gave up on a whole, a whole lot of stuff about my future. Um, and I don't mean for that to sound as depressing as it might because I had a lot of fun. It wasn't the fun that I recommend for you and your children, but I had a, I had a lot of fun, right? And in the midst of that, my sophomore year, I don't even know if they still do this anymore, um, they, may, they may or may not, Candace, you can tell me. Um, sophomore year, we took this career aptitude test. Do they still do this? They still do a career aptitude test? My goodness. Maybe that was helpful for some of y'all. Um, for those of you who don't know what a career aptitude test, a career aptitude test is essentially a test that you take um, that is not meant to necessarily measure how like intelligent you are. It's just meant to tell you like the best fit career-wise, moving forward. Now, I don't have time to tell you all of my major issues with said career aptitude test, I will just instead speak to the results that I got my sophomore year in the midst of giving up, in the midst of saying, man, school ain't for me, in the midst of saying like some of this stuff that I've been pursuing so hard is just not for me, in the midst of not loving Jesus at all, in the midst of doing what was right in my own eyes, I take this career aptitude test and I get top two results. You wanna know what they were? Nobody wants to know what they were. Okay, okay, thank you. Y'all act like y'all don't know where you're at. Listen, top two results. Number one, bartender. (laughs) I don't know what you got to answer on the career aptitude test for them to be like, nah, bro, go get behind the bar, right? Like, bartender, my number one result. Shout out to all the dope bartenders out there. Number one result. My number two result. You want to know what it was? Pastor. Now somebody got to explain to me what questions I answered in what way for somebody in Columbus to look at this and be like, well, he's got one of two options. I see this going one of two ways. You either go here. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not putting pastors up against bartenders because let me tell you, there's days, right? But some of y'all, some of y'all too conservative church background for that joke. I apologize. You can email me at J-A-D-A at but what I'm, trying to say, what I'm trying to say is this, right? So I take this career aptitude test. It says bartender and pastor. And so at that point, I was trending much more towards bartender than I was to pastor. And so that was essentially, for me, a big nail in the coffin, right? I was like, man, forget this. Like, even this test, like, yeah, I'm just done with this test. My junior year, though, uh, I meet my English teacher. We called her Mrs. G. I've talked about her in this space before because Mrs. G is incredible. Um, Mrs. G was my junior year English teacher and she had a reputation for, uh, for being a tough teacher. Uh, a, lot of t- a lot of students felt like she was mean. To be real with you, I never experienced that side of her. She was definitely tough, no doubt. Um, but for me in my life and where I was at the time, she was exactly what I needed. But the thing about Mrs. G is that my junior year and then getting into my senior year, um, she lost her husband and her daughter in the same span of time. And she would pride herself on not taking days off. And so she went, she was missing for a few days, but she didn't take the leave that any one of us in that instance would have taken. She came back to the classroom, and she would minister to her students. This was a public school. She would minister to her students through tears every day. My senior year, she would pull me out of my study halls, because she knew I wasn't using them what they were for anyway. She would pull me out of my study halls, plural, into her room, and she would preach to me the gospel, every single day. She was the first person to tell me that that career aptitude test did get one thing right. She said, Corey, you are going to be a pastor. She said, you are going to preach around the world and someday you will pastor your own church. And I had to face the fact that day specifically That Mrs. G was crazy. (laughs) It's like this woman. I tell you that story because it's always stood out to me that in the midst of what I have to believe was the darkest time in her life, in the midst of her own tragedy, that she would cling to God so tightly in that season. That even through her deep grief and sorrow, the Lord would use her to speak a better word over me. The point that I want to get to today is that in all reality, all of us face tragedy. You should consider it at this point in your life, if you haven't experience it significantly, you should consider yourself grateful and just know that it's coming. We will all face great tragedy if we haven't already. And it's hard. And when we face this tragedy, we will have to fight this temptation of either sitting out and believing that God could not possibly use me right now, that he wouldn't use me for this time period, Or the temptation that there is no time to emotionally process what's happening, I've got to get back to work. I want to speak specifically today against this false dichotomy that we've created culturally that we either take time to emotionally process the things that are happening so that they do not turn into trauma or we get to the solutions side quickly. I don't know when those two things became pitted against each other. But the reality is that a spiritual response requires us to do both. The reality is that there are moments in our linear lives as we march through chronological time there are moments that will stop the progression of everything. There are moments that interrupt not only our daily routine, but they interrupt the trajectory of our entire lives. There are moments that stop us on a dime and change absolutely everything. And the thing that I want you to know this morning is that our response in those moments will end up being used to determine the faithfulness of many. This morning, I'm tasked with walking through the story of a woman named Ruth. Now, those of you who who have been around for a while, you know that not that long ago, we did an entire series on Ruth. It was six weeks long and now you're asking me to do six weeks worth of preaching in one sitting. So just know you signed up for it. The book of Ruth, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. It starts with tragedy. We're introduced to a woman named Naomi, her husband and two children. One of her children marries this woman named Ruth. And within the first few verses of the book of Ruth, we see tragedy strike as Naomi loses not only her husband, but both of her children. For Ruth, she loses not only her husband, but her brother-in-law and her father-in-law. And the first time we're introduced to dialogue between Ruth and Naomi It's when Naomi realizes that I've got to move on from here. I've got to get out of this place. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but sometimes we feel like we just have to get up and move on from something. That we can't possibly stay here. That there's something else for us somewhere else. And I don't exactly know what it is. And I don't exactly know where it is. But I've just got to go. And she looks at her two daughter-in-laws, who are now also widowed, just like her. And she says, don't you come with me, because I don't know where this journey takes me. I don't know how I'm going to provide for myself. I don't know how this is going to turn out. So don't come with me and doom yourselves. Stay put right where you're at. And reluctantly, her one daughter-in-law named Orpah decides, okay, I'm going to stay. In verse 14 of Ruth chapter 1, It says that then they, meaning Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, meaning Naomi said this, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to the things That will bring her comfort. Your sister-in-law has gone back to the things that will help her cope and her deal with her situation. Naomi's tough recommendation for Ruth is that you go find your own comfort. You go find what will give you strength. You go find what will offer you redemption. You go find your own situation and your own way of coping and dealing with this horrible tragedy. But the text says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. She says to her mother-in-law, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth responds to Naomi's pain with the utmost loyalty. Ruth declares her undying dedication to Naomi and refuses to leave her now or ever for that matter. And see, she realizes that this means she will be cut off from her own people, that the land that they're going to, she will be a foreigner. She will not be welcomed, nor will there be a path for her. She leaves the land that she's known. She leaves what she came up in she leaves a place that just might offer her temporary relief from the tragedy. Instead, to cling tightly to one thing that she knows. To cling tightly to one relationship where she's experienced God. To cling tightly to the one thing, if anything, that she knows to be true and that is the relationship that exists between her and her mother-in-law. In times of tragedy, the world communicates to us that there are several ways we can choose to deal with this. To pick any of these options to find our comfort. To pick any of these options to find our strength to find what will help us cope, to find what will help us deal, albeit temporarily, to find our own way through. But the reality of a spiritual response to tragedy is that we ought to cling tightly not to the methods, not to the temporary ways that the world offers to us, but to the one bit of truth that even though it doesn't feel like it momentarily, we know to be real. Let me ask you, what truth from God do you need to cling tightly to? Naomi clung to her relationship. Our spiritual response ought to mirror Naomi's in that even though everything around me feels like it's falling apart, I will cling to this one thing I know to be true. Yes, sir. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I have no idea how I will provide for myself. I have no idea how I'm going to get up and move on from here. But if I know anything for sure, it is that God is faithful. Yes, he is. is it God's faithfulness that you need to hang on to? Some of you may be facing difficulties at your job. I don't know. I don't know how this goes. I feel like maybe my time is coming to an end at at this current position. Oh, dang. Sorry. I feel like maybe it is time that I need to move on, but good grief. I've got a whole family. How on earth? Do I support this family? And I have no idea how this plays out, but if I know anything to be true, it's that the record of my life shows God to be a provider. Yes, yes sir. I know some of you right now are facing a lot of situations that it's really, really difficult to see any type of goodness in. Yes, sir. That what happened I would say it was never supposed to happen that way. And it feels hard because it's out of your control and there's nothing you could have done. And here you want to tell me that God works things out, but it's hard for me to see the good. And I don't know how this is going to play out. But if I know anything to be true, it's that God is good. It's that God possesses the characteristic of perfect goodness. I know for a lot of people, it feels like everything around you is falling apart, that there is nothing you can do to to stop the water from leaking inside. And I have no clue how this plays out. But if I know one thing to be true, it's that God is in control. In times of tragedy, it's not a Jesus juke. It's not a cop-out. It's not a churchy response. It's the reality to hang on to the one bit of truth of God that you know to be real. What is the truth of God that you need to cling to? What is the truth of God right now that's going to get you through this season? What is the truth of God that even though it doesn't feel like it, is the reality that you need to accept. Now, it doesn't say how long Ruth and Naomi would mourn for. And as they moved back to to Judah, it doesn't say how long they had to emotionally process what had happened. So I don't want to give the impression that tragedy strikes today Emotionally processed tomorrow, and by about Thursday, you about ready, right? I don't want to give that impression. But I do want to show where Ruth goes from here. We pick up in chapter 2. Verse 1 says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Let me break this down real, real, real quick. Right. There weren't a ton of ways. For a widow to make a living culturally, right? There weren't a lot of options for Ruth. One of the very, very few options in the Levitical system that God set up a really long time ago was for a widow to be able to go to the margins of the field. It was told that that that, that um, uh, what's it called? Like a farmer, right? Good grief! Come on, Corey, help me, Holy Ghost. It was told that you shouldn't reap the harvest all the way to the edge of your field, that you should leave some on the margins, and that as you are reaping what you have harvested, if something falls to the ground, you do not bend down to pick it up. You leave that, sit there on the ground, because what God was allowing for was for the poor or for the widows to come up behind and pick what was fresh but had fallen to the ground or existed on the margins of the field. Now, see, society had gotten to a point where they were so far from Levitical law that a lot of people had started farming all the way out to the edge of the field. They started farming all the way out there because what would happen if you farmed all the way out there? You got more profit, more profit. Well, more problems, but they didn't see it that way. So they would would farm all the way out to the edge of the field. This was not a rule that many people were following. However, what Ruth was able to do was she was able to find a place that would have grace for her. Ruth was able to find the field that had not farmed all the way out to the edges. And there in that field, she would be able to come behind those who were harvesting and reap what had fallen to the ground for herself and for Naomi. Naomi. What, what I mean to communicate in that, because there's a lot there, is that at some point in the face and in light of tragedy, our response needs to be to go to where we find favor and get to work. It's this idea that, that God had set up the system for people who were in mourning. God had set up this system for people who had come to a point of tragedy in their lives. He realizes that at some point, there's going to be a group of people that face this, so let me come up with a path, let me come up with a way, let me come up with a system that in and of itself provides just a bit of relief and possibly could lead to some redemption in their stories. Ruth found the field where she would find favor. And then she didn't just sit in that field. And she's like, no, I'm just waiting on my Boaz. My girl Ruth got to work. Where is the place that you find favor? Where is the place that to no doing of your own, people just like you there. That there seems to just be open doors provided for you for no reason. Because here's the reality, even in light of the new covenant, this is something that Jesus himself promises. In Luke chapter 10, he tells us that if you are faithful to go door to door, I am faithful to have one of those houses be set up to give you favor. There will be peace for you in one of those houses. If you just keep knocking on doors, if you just keep looking for the place where the Lord has preordained for there to be favor for you, you will, crazy thought, find it. But then Jesus instructs when you do find it, don't just say, oh, cool. Well, favor's at that house. Let me keep going and see how much favor I can find and how many houses He says, stay right there. Go inside, eat and drink, whatever it is that they have to offer. Stay there. Ruth found favor in a field and she would stay there. She wouldn't go look for another field because maybe there's one that's slightly bigger or slightly more margin that I could find. She found favor in one and she stayed there. And then she got to work. And isn't God so infinitely creative? Because the text says, and I love this phrase in Ruth, I don't have time to go into it too much further. The Bible says, and it just so happened to be Boaz's field. It just so happened to be the field that was owned by one of two people that could possibly culturally, sociologically, spiritually redeem Ruth's situations. We see in Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Naomi realizes what's going on. Naomi's putting two and two together. She sees how things are starting to play out. It says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, in other words, she's saying, Is not Boaz the person who can redeem this story? Is not Boaz the kinsman redeemer, right? Check this out. She says, So he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Oh my goodness. Huh. She says, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Take a shower, girl. You've been in the fields all day. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor because that's where Boaz is at. She says, but don't make yourself known to the man. Don't go putting on a front. That's not what the Lord asked of you, girl. Right. Right. Wait until he's finished eating and drinking, and when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, this reply is key, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to check this reply right here. Ruth looks at her mother-in-law, and she says, all that you say, I will do. So, the significance of Boaz is as the family's redeemer. See, it was cultural pla- practice, excuse me, it was cultural practice that if a man died leaving behind a wife, it was the responsibility of the closest relative to redeem the family by, mar- by marrying the widow, taking up the land, the wife, and protecting the family. And Boaz was Naomi's deceased husband's relative. So now Naomi's got the wheels turning. Now she's starting to see a little bit of hope. Now she's like, okay, this might just work out. So she's like, Ruth, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go put yourself in a situation to be redeemed. Ruth's like, how do I do that? She's like, I'm about to tell you. See, Boaz... Boaz is down there winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Come again, sir? Let me say it this way. The threshing floor was in an intentionally exposed, windy place. It was in the open. It was meant to be windy at the threshing floor. And in this process, grain was separated from the husk by letting animals in to trample over all of the crops. And then what they would do is they would mix all that was together and they would throw it in the wind. So the wind would take away all the junk and all that was left to fall to the floor was the grain that was right for them to collect. So the process of the threshing floor is to chop it all up, throw it in the air. Let the wind take away the bad stuff. Take what's left. And what I find to be so interesting is that I don't think it's coincidence that the wheels start turning. This isn't about Boaz. This is about Naomi sensing the direction that the wind is blowing. Pun intended because that's a pun. I know some of y'all didn't get it. And let me get nerdy real quick. I have to explain it to you. That's a pun because the word in the Old Testament that's used for wind is the same word in the Old Testament that's used for spirit, specifically the spirit of God. So one might say that Naomi sensed where the spirit of God was heading. That that it was perhaps about time for the Spirit of God to take away all that was bad and leave for Ruth only what was right for her to collect. So she says, what you're going to do, Ruth, is you're going to go down there to that windy place. You're going to go down there where the spirit's getting stirred up. You're going to go down there where God's presence is being felt. You're going to throw up in the air all that you've been dealing with. You're going to let the spirit of God and God alone take away all the bad stuff that you've been harvesting. And you're going to take for yourself. You're going to collect for yourself and for the whole community only What God has left for you to collect. Now, I need to make this disclaimer because I know our culture just well enough to know that I need to make this disclaimer. The culture that is in this book is so far removed from our own that when we did this six six week series however many years ago, it took me an entire one week just to explain the context of this book, okay? The reason that I bring that up is because what I'm afraid somebody might take away. I know none of y'all, I'm saying somebody on YouTube, right? What I'm afraid that somebody might take away is that what you heard was that in order for me to be redeemed, I need to go throw myself at a man's feet. I'm afraid that when somebody may have heard me say was that in order to be redeemed, I need to find a romantic relationship with, put on my best dress, and put myself out there. I need to be real clear. That's not what this text says. That's not what this text says. Let me get more explicit with it, okay? And remember, my email address, I expressed it earlier, J-A-D-A at Listen, listen. Let me be more explicit. The Lord our God, the creator of all things, in his infinite wisdom and perfect sovereignty, is not leading you in your redemption to a man or to a woman. The Lord is not leading you to a romantic relationship, period. The Lord is leading you in the process of redemption to himself. He's leading you to himself. Perhaps in that process, you find somebody. But that is not the point of this text. The point of this text is that to put yourself in a proper position to be redeemed, you ought to put yourself in close proximity to what you recognize the Spirit is doing and where it's moving. In other words, to be redeemed, you need to put yourself in close proximity to Jesus. In other words, to be redeemed, you need to ingrain yourself Another pun. Hey, one person caught it. Shout out to Roz. You need to ingrain yourself in the community that the Lord has so carefully crafted to be around you. You need to find yourself in close proximity to Jesus. You need to find yourself in Christian community, people that actually believe the truth and speak that into your life. And you need to find yourself in a position regularly, I would say on a daily, if not an hourly basis, to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to renew your heart and your mind. Yes, sir. That, that is how you're redeemed. We put ourselves in a position to be redeemed. When we put ourselves in close proximity to Jesus, when we put ourselves in Christian community, when we put ourselves in positions where the Holy Spirit can renew our hearts and our minds, this is not about going out and searching for what's going to help you. This is about living into the system that the Lord set up a long, long time ago to redeem you. We need to be careful at how we allow tragedy to affect our souls. Because it was through Jesus that God went through the greatest tragedy of all. To allow there to be a system through relationship with Jesus for us to be redeemed. And see, the thing about this life and the path that we're walking on because it's so fallen in nature it's really tough and it inevitably is going to hurt us in extremely, unspeakably personal ways. But the question we have to answer this morning is will we stay committed? Will our spiritual response to tragedy mirror that which we learn from it in Ruth? When tragedy and hardship strikes, will we allow anger and unforgiveness to set in and fester? Because that will only drive us further from God's redemption for our lives. When tragedy and hardship strikes, will we out of our pain leave the path in an effort to look for something ourselves? Or will we acknowledge that even though we can't feel God right now, that even though he seems so far away, I know that by evidence of the breath in my lungs, he's not finished with me, that by evidence of the fact that I woke up this morning, God placed purpose like a fire on my head. And will we be mindful of this decision? Make it actively, every day. Because the reality is, if the history of the Bible shows us anything, it's that the pain that we're going through it's not just for us. One of my favorite lines from my favorite movie of all time It's just before he goes into battle, Maximus Aurelius says to his soldiers, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. The commitment we decide today And every day in the face of tragedy will inevitably have ripple effects in eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is timeless and it is true. And now, Lord, I pray that you would take away all that is not from you and allow to resonate deeply in our hearts like a seed planted deeply in the field, the word that is for us from you. And God, I pray that not a single one of us gathered in this space today would be able to leave here without knowing full well that the God of the universe and the creator of all things has spoken directly and intimately to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up.